Hello, my name is Leslie Goodburn. I'm a Pancreatic Cancer UK supporter, and you're here today listening to some podcasts that we're doing. The reason that we're doing the podcast is because there are two small words, pancreatic cancer, two small words that actually have a massive impact on people, that cause devastation, that create psychological, emotional and physical pain. Before 2014, I didn't really know a great deal about pancreatic cancer. I knew that it was one of the cancers that had a poor survival rate, but that was probably all I knew. In 2014, my husband Seth was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. We were thrust into a world of palliative and end-of-life care, and unfortunately, 33 days after diagnosis, Seth died from pancreatic cancer. Seth didn't really stand a chance, couldn't get treatment because actually the disease was diagnosed at such a late stage that there wasn't the possibility to have any other outcome than Seth was going to die. So after Seth died, spent a lot of time thinking about how to support Pancreatic Cancer UK to raise awareness of the disease, of the signs and symptoms, to raise money. So I've spent the last four years working with various different organisations, getting GPs trained, raising funds through doing things with Emma Bridgewater Pottery, doing charity balls, um, standing in the, in the street during Awareness Month and giving out leaflets to raise awareness. Um, Last year we did some work around patient stories, this year we're doing the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer podcasts. The podcasts are designed to give everyone who listens to them an idea about what the pancreas does, why it's important, what its function is, what happens when cancer forms, what the signs and symptoms of the disease are, how people can recognise those recognise those signs and symptoms so that they can go to the GP and hopefully get diagnosed early enough for treatment to be an option. We're going to talk to some of the UK's leading clinicians, nurses, allied health professionals, experts in various different fields, and most importantly, we're going to talk to some patients and families who've experienced the disease. So over the course of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, which is November, the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer podcasts will be broadcast and it'll give you all an opportunity to understand the disease much better, to think about how you can support raising awareness going forward and to spread the word about pancreatic cancer and hopefully make sure that in the future many more people are diagnosed earlier and people are given the chance for treatment, the chance that Seth never had. I'm Charlotte Foster, podcaster and journalist. Leslie asked me to produce these podcasts and I'll be honest, I came into this not knowing very much about pancreatic cancer. So together, you and I will find out more about this disease, why it's so hard to diagnose, what's being done to change that, as well as the effect all of this has on patients and of course their families. But first... Let's get back to basics and find out about the pancreas and more. I've been to speak to Dr Ruth Chambers. She's the clinical chair of the Stoke-on-Trent Clinical Commissioning Group. I began by asking her, just where is the pancreas and what does it even do? The pancreas is just under your stomach area um, and it um, does things like looking after the insulin that your body needs so it can keep your blood glucose levels right and that's something that's a big feature in 
diabetes. So it does do quite a lot of things, but that's what it's sort of most known for. I was going to say, it's not really one of the the well-known bits of your body, is it? It isn't, but I think that the fact that things can go wrong with it is what's brought it more to the headlines recently. Although there is still not as much interest in the pancreas as there is in people's hearts and livers and kidneys, but it's just as important. Moving on then to the disease cancer. I mean, big question, and there's lots of research going into it, and I'm not entirely sure there is an actual answer as such, but how does, how does cancer form? What, what happens? Well, I've been a GP for 40 years, and I can honestly say I don't know. Now, I might have read several articles, and they might have given me some answers, but I think there's a lot about cancer that we don't know. We do know the kind of people who are more likely to get cancer, and that is like people who are overweight, people who smoke, people who've got other health conditions like diabetes and so on. And so if I hear from a scientist how you get cancer, can they really explain to me why the people I've just been talking about are more likely to get it? So I suppose it must be something to do with the cells in your body and them having a a normal function. But if someone's relatives have had cancer, they're more likely to get it. So there's something in your genetics genetics that tells you how cancer happens. And then if someone is so overweight, they're more likely to get cancer. And we're not just talking about pancreas there. We're talking about breast and so on, ovaries. Then is it because the fat gets in and makes the cells bulge and then they don't function so well? So I imagine there's lots and lots of factors that create cancer. How does it spread then? Because you hear people going, well, they start off with cancer in one place and then the next thing it's in another place. Well, again, I know what scientists write and they talk about lymph nodes. So there must be something goes from the lung cancer very quickly into those lymph nodes and suddenly there are lumps under people's arms and the pancreas is like that. How I understand it is that the cancer might not live very long in that pancreas before it's suddenly starting to move around the body. And then what's so upsetting is that it's hidden for quite a while. Then all of a sudden, by the time you realise it's there, because it's moving around the bloodstream and the lymph nodes into other organs and causing symptoms, that's when people realise they've got it. You just touched on a little bit there about the late detection rate of pancreatic cancer. Why is it often picked up so late? It's really because the symptoms are so vague. So the early symptoms might be um, jaundice and people might notice that their eyes are yellow. Well, actually, they'll probably go to a doctor pretty quickly then. They might notice that they've got bloating of their stomach. And they sort of think, oh, well, it's my fault. I've been eating too much. Um, And they're also a bit embarrassed about going to a doctor or a nurse with a symptom that's so vague, especially if it's to do with constipation or what they've been eating and so on. And so they don't go along with that kind of symptom. It might be because they're a little bit sickly. And again, their appetite's not quite so good. But then when the symptoms get more extreme like a bulging stomach or that jaundice that I mentioned or maybe they start losing weight and they can't really explain it because they are still eating Um, then they go along to the doctor by which time it's very late in the stage 
and the doctor will start investigating it and it doesn't take long to get that bad news. People can have slightly different symptoms depending where the cancer is forming in the, in the, in the pancreas, can't they? Yes, as I understand it, if the uh, cancer, the tumour, is towards the head of the pancreas, then that puts more pressure on what we call the bile duct. So that is the duct that goes from the liver into the intestine and so on. And so actually that blockage then causes jaundice. So that is where I was saying the jaundice could make your eyes and skin yellow and your urine might be darker because it's changing how that bilirubin goes through the bile duct because it's blocked by the pressure from the head of the pancreas. If the cancer's in the other end of the pancreas, then you're not going to get the jaundice first and then you're going to be more likely to get the other symptoms like the bloating and so on because it's going to be nearer more to the stomach and the intestine. And with something like pancreatic cancer in particular, the the survival rates are quite scary. 24% for for one year, 7% for five years and only 1% for 10 years. And also 45% of people are diagnosed at A&E as well. Why is that, do you think? Well, we know that about 2%, that's 1 in 50 people, do get pancreatic cancer in their lifetime. Um, And a lot of those people um, are over 60, though some are 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It's just really that people aren't looking out for it. And so it's a surprise. So if you've got those vague symptoms, but then you suddenly get jaundiced or those that bloating, and so you didn't go to your doctor, you might then just go along to A&E because suddenly your stomach's so large and sometimes people get what we call ascites, which is it has got so large, the liver's not working and the fluid is starting to go there. So that even a man could look pregnant. Then they're going to say, oh, where shall I go? Where shall I go? And they might just go along to A&E or they might have had a drink in the pub the night before and someone says oh you need to get sorted mate and they'll just go down to A&E so it's sort of ad hoc when they turn up at A&E and again you just have to hope that the very busy junior doctors and nurses there recognize it and don't send them on the way but do investigate it. Have you become more aware of pancreatic cancer over the last few years do you think? I think um, as a GP Um, then although I felt I was a very experienced GP after 40 years if I ever heard of a a case where um, someone got cancer very late stage um, maybe as I said with the ascites and just presenting at A&E I would think is there anything else I could be doing as a GP to be catching these um, people earlier and so actually I started to have... um, much lower threshold not just for pancreatic cancer someone was asking me yesterday about when I did a DEXA scan thinking that someone's bones might be thin because otherwise they might fall over have a fracture that I could have prevented if I'd noted it earlier as a GP and got them taking more calcium and so that definitely happens to me as a health professional that if I see a case nothing to do with me but I read a story I think I must look out for this and I'll have a much wider range of suspicion if someone comes with a little bit of weight loss, 
some jaundice unexpectedly, some bloating, that can we really put it down to what they've been eating? And then I will start doing some blood tests or some scans of their uh, stomach. And of course, the future is going to be what we're calling artificial intelligence, because it may well be that if I put in some symptoms that someone's telling me, I could get a flag, maybe in two or three years' time, that says, look out, doctor, this could be a symptom of some serious cancer. Is there anything anybody could do listening to this to give themselves the best chance of preventing any type of cancer, really, but in particular pancreatic cancer? It's people's lifestyle habits. Um, The trouble is that people get used to the norm and you walk down almost any city streets and almost, if you're actually looking, one in two people look like they're overweight. There's an awful lot of people smoking. And, of course, there's the passive smoking for the people who live with them. If people could just lose weight to a normal weight, and these days a normal weight means really what we call body mass index less than 25, stop smoking. Okay, go for e-cigarettes to start with, but then stop those too. And the same with drinking too much alcohol, which, you know, if perhaps you just have four or five glasses or pints of beer and wine, per week maximum that's fine if people could also stop sitting down and watching tv and being on their phones and do plenty of exercise e.g three or four miles most days or a different kind of exercise at home just doing some cycling while they're watching tv then i expect cancer rates will be cut by 50 percent, and people would be getting cancer if they really must get it 10 years later that's the answer Thank you to Dr. Ruth Chambers for talking to me. So that's her view. And obviously that's coming with her old GP hat on. But just how does a diagnosis feel when it's your mum being treated? I personally can't begin to imagine what it's like. However, I have been speaking to Louise Riley. She knows exactly what that feels like. Her mum, Sharon, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and very sadly, she died last year in September. Louise has been telling me just what Sharon was like. Cliché. She was the best mum I could have wished for. Um, She was incredibly kind and caring and generous with her time and just in every way, really. Um, She was fun and bubbly and fit and healthy. She had lots of friends. Her work colleagues adored her. Um, and yeah, I, I couldn't have asked for a better mum, really. What, what, what are her hobbies, her passions? What was she really into? Her family was her entire life. Um, it, her life centred around, um, firstly, me and my brother as we were growing up. Um, and then as obviously we, we got older, I had children and my three girls were her world. Um, she any spare time that she had she was happy to devote to them um, and they they loved her um, we spent most days at her house um, and she just loved having her family around her she does sound like the absolute perfect mum but sadly your mum died last September tell me a little bit about first of all how your mum first noticed there was there was something wrong um, so she started to have some back pains. Um, she'd complained a few times about having a funny taste in her mouth. Um, but, but that was, um, that was kind of attributed to a little bit of acid reflux. 
um and then the pain in her back started so she had quite um quite a gnawing pain in her back and then that became quite a sharp intense pain that moved around into her side and into just off center in her abdomen in her upper abdomen um she went to the doctors initially with the back pain and the doctor thought that it might be muscular um mum was pretty positive it wasn't but you know she took the doctor's advice she went to see the physio um the physiotherapist listened to what mum had to say asked her some questions and said that she didn't believe that what mum was describing was um, a muscular pain um so she told mum to go back to the doctor um mum did that and was referred off for a scan on her um on her chest her her and her, and her upper abdomen um and she had that but in the meantime um she was admitted into hospital um with really nasty sharp pains which at the time they believed were her gallbladder um and when she was uh in the hospital they booked her in for a scan um told her to you know go away because the, the pain subsided um told her to go away and you know hopefully it wouldn't happen again but they would they would get her in for a scan anyway um so she went away and had the scan and when they did the scan they couldn't actually find any gallstones they did find um a sludge but they they mentioned at the time that they didn't think that that would be what was causing her pain but obviously she was in some uh, quite a significant amount of pain at times and so they did a gallbladder uh, removal operation and after that she was okay for a couple of months once um once those couple of months were up she started to get this niggling pain again in her back and in her side um and it was more intense than before and she used to say to us the only thing that would get rid of the pain for even a few seconds was when she used to have a drink of water it used to ease it a little bit so um we went on like this for a while and then the doctors said look we need to send you for another scan and this was in november 2016 um she went for a scan and we hadn't heard anything back in the january i'd started to chase it because it had been almost 6 weeks since we, she'd had the she'd had the initial scan um which was an ultrasound and we hadn't heard anything so i started to chase the hospital for the results and unfortunately before those results came mum again was admitted to hospital she was in an excruciating amount of pain one night um and we had to call an ambulance because it was just it was just horrific so she went into hospital and she was in there for a couple of days with um she was being given intravenous um painkillers for for just the, the sheer colossal amount of pain that she was in and they had already booked in um an endos an endoscopy with a biopsy where they go through your stomach wall and into the pancreas to take a small biopsy because i think they already had by this point the um ultrasound results but they hadn't relayed those to mum yet or any of us and the day before she was due to go the, for, for this endoscopy at a different um at a dis- different hospital she was discharged and in her discharge notes um i read them mum didn't read them i read them and it said that on the initial 
um, ultrasound in November 2016, they had found a two and a half centimeter um, mass in the tail of her pancreas. So we didn't tell mum about that. Um, she went for the endoscopy the next day with the biopsy. And then we didn't hear anything again for weeks. Um, it was coming up for between five and six weeks. So it was three months, really, and it, since the initial scan that she'd had where they'd found the math. Um, and then at the start of March, I really started to chase at them and say, look, this is this is ridiculous now, bearing in mind that I knew that I'd, I'd read this these notes and I knew that there was a mass in her pancreas so I'd done some research and I knew that time really was of the essence and uh, they called us in uh, we went in to see the gastroenterologist who said to mum it's not great news I'm afraid we you you do have pancreatic cancer but um, it's you know it's good news in one way because it is an operable form um, we, we're going to get you straight into the um, local hospital. There's a local cancer centre who specialise in pancreatic cancer. We're going to get you in there. They're going to call you within a couple of days. Once once they've called you, you should be having the Whipple operation within a week. Go away. You won't hear from us again until you've had that done. Well, we hadn't heard about four or five days later. So again, I started to chase. Um, I called the hospital, I couldn't get any answers, so I called PALS and they actually managed then to get the, the, the doctor to give us a call and he said, look, we need to see you. Um, so they called us in again, um, first thing on a Monday morning and they said that after having a conversation with the hospital, um, it seemed that perhaps the better route to go would be to have some chemotherapy first and then to have the Whipple operation afterwards, but it was still absolutely definitely on the cards. So mum was obviously really upbeat about it. Yeah, let's get this chemo done. We'll get that out of the way and then we'll get the operation. And she, as I say, she was really fit and healthy. So the only thing then that we were concerned about was that she might lose some weight and the chemo might make her ill. So we, you know, kept feeding her up, keeping her healthy. And then again, about six or seven days after that, we were called in again and we were told that they'd found a couple of concerns on the scans that they'd done and what they initially thought had been a red herring that they were there that was their words a red herring um which was a lymph node in mum's groin um probably wasn't actually a red herring and they needed to take another biopsy so they did that and they also said that they'd found a shadow on her spine, which they believed was arthritis, um, but they just wanted to check. And unfortunately, when all of that came back and they really looked into it further, it turned out that it had spread and she did have cancer in her lymph nodes and also in her spine. So then it became um, a terminal diagnosis with palliative chemotherapy and no chance of the Whipple. So we kind of had a, a a knock three times in a row within within about two to three weeks where we'd gone from having the best outcome that we could get with pancreatic cancer to having the worst outcome that we could have. Um, and yeah, she, she was feeling a little bit bashed by that point. 
and that was when we started the chemo. I was going to say, to go from one extreme to another and to have to battle as well to, to even find out what was wrong. Yeah. As a family, what was it like to go through that? Because I can't imagine. It was tough. I mean, my mum really believed all the way, even even after she was told that it had spread, she really, truly believed that she was going to beat it. Um, my brother and I never, uh, we, we never, ever, between any of us, spoke about anything negative. It was always, you know, mum, if you're, you know, if you're ready to fight this, we're ready, we're right behind you. But it, it hurts when somebody tells you that you're going to have a really positive or you're going to have not necessarily going to have a really positive outcome but they really believe that you know there's a good chance that mum has a great outcome from this in terms of how good pancreatic cancer can be to then go to maybe it's going to be okay and then to I'm sorry you know there's there's not an awful lot we can do that is a really tough thing to try and remain positive and give mum all the positivity that she needs to be able to you know give the chemotherapy her all and to still stay in the right frame of mind where she can can tolerate that kind of uh, of a drug it's it's tough um and and mum always said you know she just wanted them to tell her straight she you know whatever whatever it was if she was told how serious it was that's that's fine if if the outcome's not going to be great but but she just wanted facts she didn't want to be told something that that inevitably wasn't to be it is a time critical disease um you know cancer in itself is awful but this particular type of cancer is so aggressive and there's such little time you know we ended up two months after her gallbladder was out with exactly the same pain um, I just wish perhaps that pancreatic cancer was at the forefront of the investigation rather than, you know, the the kind of the leftovers, if you like, or we've we've kind of tried everything else. So let's have a look at this now, um, because I've I've spoken to an awful lot of people where the gallbladder has been the suspect and it's actually ended up that it's the pancreas that's the problem pancreatic cancer is so time sensitive that if you know if we go for that first and we really investigate whether that's a problem and it's not then great we've ruled it out but if it is that tends to be the difference between somebody you know being a statistic you know where they've reached the five-year mark the 10-year mark and they're really you know they've they've gone ahead and they've had a fantastic life or becoming one of those you know 95% who don't make it to that first year. Well, your mum is far more than a number, a statistic, a part of any kind of percentage. And um, I understand that she managed to get to the wedding of your brother as well. She did, yeah. So um, after we were told that it was obviously palliative, palliative um, chemotherapy, mum... Um, didn't want to know how long she had but she wanted me to know how long she had so that we had something you know that we could so we could put everything in order but she didn't want to know because she didn't want to put a, a, a time frame 
So um, the oncologist originally said that they believed that she would have around six months, but they'd try and get her to a year. Um, my brother hadn't arranged a thing <laughs> with his wedding, and that was in April. Um, he wasn't due to get married until the following September. Um, so in the April, she made a pledge and she said, well, whichever way, she said, I'm going to watch my son get married. And um, my brother has a fantastic, really, absolutely great relationship with my mum. He he was still living at home with my mum. He'd done uni and him and his, his fiance at the time, they were saving for a house and stuff. And uh, they were all, they were nearly there. They'd had the house deposit and stuff. And instead they said, look, let's bring the wedding forward. So they brought the wedding forward to August the 19th um, yeah. of 2017 last year. And they spent their savings on their wedding, but they were adamant that they wanted, obviously my mum to see them get married and mum wanted to do that. And Luke wanted to give her something to aim for. And uh, yeah, he did. She got there. She was incredibly poorly um, the morning of the wedding. Um, I She was in a, a wheelchair um and I had to literally you know kind of lift her up and say come on mum you've got here you wanted this you're here now and she got up and she danced with him she she danced with him on the dance floor we've got some fantastic photos of that Luke's got the memory of dancing with his mum on his wedding day and the following morning um when we left the hotel that was when she became poorly um she got in the car and unfortunately the cancer had gone into her spine and uh, her spine fractured and um that was it straight into hospital from then so she made the wedding and then the day after she went she went into hospital and that was the end unfortunately um two weeks later we had two weeks in hospital with her and then she was um th- that was yeah she died your mum sounds like an absolutely fantastic woman um, to just be able to carry on. And I totally get the whole not wanting to know, not wanting to put like a stopwatch on or a set yeah. that, that timer and go all oh, counting down. But yeah. what what was, obviously the wedding was there as a focus. What else kept her going through all this? The kids, my children. Mm. Um she she just lived for her family my brother and I she lived for us all um even even when she was having chemotherapy and she was really really poorly um the kids used to walk in and they would you know her face would just light up and she'd be trying to get off the sofa to go and make them a drink or get them something to eat or she'd give them a hug or you know tell me about your day kids how's school been she was just full of questions wanted to speak to them wanted to know and her work colleagues she had um some fantastic work colleagues um one lady in particular um called Gaynor, um was a great friend to my mum and she organized a couple of fundraisers in my mum's name um literally just to raise money so that my mum could have some money so that she didn't have to struggle and worry about money during her chemotherapy. Um, And that was really, really lovely. Unfortunately, uh, the fundraiser that they held, um, my mum got poorly the day before she got neutropenic sepsis 
um, which is obviously a uh, side effect of the chemo because your immune system is so low and it can be quite dangerous. So mum was in hospital. Um, we faced, I went to the, the fundraiser and we FaceTimed mum and I went around the room to everybody and they all said hi and stuff. So she has some really fantastic work colleagues as well. And why is it so important to you to, to tell your mum's story, to share her story? Because it must still be really, really raw for you. It is. It is raw. Um, I think that, you know, your mum's the first person that you meet in the world. And, you know, she was closest to my heart. But the reason I want to tell mum's story is because I feel that there's not enough awareness. There is... Um, there's not enough GPs that send people that refer people quick enough. Um, the symptoms are so vague often that they're mistaken for something else. And people, are, I, I speak to people all the time and, and I tell them that my mum died of pancreatic cancer and the word cancer, people understand how severe it is. They understand that there's, you know, this horrible disease that grips you but they don't understand how aggressive pancreatic cancer in particular is. And they don't understand that the survival rates are so low because it's such a difficult organ to, to treat. Um, and I think that, you know, more awareness of the symptoms will allow us to catch it a little bit earlier and perhaps give somebody, you know, the chance that, you know, the rest of their life. So that's really why it's important to me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Search for Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. Click subscribe and you won't miss an episode. This episode is number one of eight. So there's plenty coming through throughout the month of November, which is, of course, Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. If you want to find out more about pancreatic cancer, about what we've spoken about on the podcast, head to our website www.purplerainbow.co.uk. On Twitter, it is at p99rain or at frperprainbow. And I look forward to talking to you next time. <laughs>